The sermon you are about to hear was given at Pillar Bible Fellowship in Hood River, Oregon. Pillar Bible Fellowship exists to glorify God by knowing Christ more fully and making Christ more fully known. Email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org. You can find more information about Pillar Bible Fellowship online at www.pillarhoodriver.org. Please enjoy the podcast. Father God, as we come to your word, we are grateful that you have given your word to us. It's a revelation of of who you are, of what you are like. And as we've been working through the book of Amos, we've been challenged because our perceptions sometimes, our preconceived ideas about who you are or what you are like, how you work, have been challenged by this presentation. And even this morning, seeing you coming in judgment, giving this vision to Amos. But Lord, help us to understand this rightly, to see how you are at work, and to see the salvation that you have offered through your son, Jesus. God, open our eyes and our ears that we would receive from you, soften our hearts, that your word would land on it as good soil, ready for the good seed to bear fruit in our lives. We pray and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning we come to the final vision in the book of Amos. This is the the final of five visions, and these visions began in Amos chapter 7. In Amos chapter 7, we had three visions. We had the vision of the locust coming and devouring the land. We had the fire that was also devouring the land. And then the vision of the Lord standing beside a wall built with a plumb line saying, Israel is off kilter. In Amos chapter 8, which Seth brought us through last week, we we saw the basket of summer fruit, the vision of the basket of summer fruit. And now here in chapter 9, in verses 1 through 10, we see this final vision. And this vision, if it were a dream, we might say it was a nightmare. It's this terrible vision of God's terrifying presence. And as we continue looking through this chapter in these 10 verses, we see also this disastrous pride that was present among the people of Israel. Now, I want to approach this text this morning in three parts, and I'll just give these to you right up front so you can follow along and see how we're tracking through this passage. In the first four verses we have this vision where God gives a vision of his terrifying presence. So you can write that down, the terrifying presence. And then in verses 5 and 6, there's a, there's a break away from this vision and from the Lord speaking, and Amos inserts his own comments, or what we might see as a hymn of praise to God, who we see is awesome in power, verses 5 and 6, awesome in power. And then verses 7 through 10 is a return to the Lord making his declarations, speaking to the people of Israel and talking about their disastrous pride, disastrous pride. So we'll start with these first four verses, terrifying presence. Now Amos begins by saying, I saw the Lord standing beside the altar. That caused me this week to hit the brakes and start asking questions. Standing beside the altar? The Lord doesn't stand beside the altar. We, we see pictures of our Lord God seated on his throne. Isaiah chapter 6, I saw the Lord seated on his throne. 
This amazing picture of God Almighty and the seraphim crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. We see in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 21, God sitting on his throne. In Hebrews, in a couple places, we, we read about Jesus who is seated at the right hand of God. But standing beside the altar, there's, there's Acts chapter 7 where Jesus is standing to receive Stephen, the first martyr of the church, and Stephen looks up and he sees Jesus standing. But Amos says he sees this vision of the Lord standing beside the altar. Now, an altar was something that was man-made. It was built by hands, And it was a place of sacrifice. It's where you would take an animal, you would take burnt offerings, you would make sacrifice on this altar to God. That could be God Almighty, the one true and living God, but false religions also had altars, places of sacrifice. Now, the altar... For Israel, which accompanied the temple, this was their place of sacrifice. There was to be one altar at which they brought sacrifices. They're at the temple where they would worship in Jerusalem. And that altar was to be a place of justice where they saw that sin was costly. It costs life the life of this animal who is now atoning for my sins, Israel under the old covenant. The altar was to be a place of righteousness, where they would see the righteousness of God, where they would see judgment and also begin to understand mercy. Because of this sacrifice, God is overlooking my sins now of atonement, where I can be brought into relationship with God, a place of restoration, where this relationship can be restored, a place of forgiveness. That is what the altar was to be. But this altar, which the Lord is standing beside in Amos' vision in chapter 9, I don't believe is the altar in Jerusalem. No, I think this altar is the altar built to a false god, a place of deceit, a place of idolatry, a place of of bitterness. We've read that as we've studied through the book of Amos, that they've turned justice to wormwood. That is, it's something bitter now. So this altar, where an altar should represent justice, instead, this altar represented bitterness unrighteousness. And instead of forgiveness, it represented their condemnation. Keep a finger in Amos 9, but let's turn back a little ways to the first book of Kings. First Kings and chapter 13. 1 Kings 13, and we read there that, Behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings, and the man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. 
And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. What we have here is Jeroboam, after the kingdom of Israel had divided Judah in the south and Israel in the north, and the king of Israel here in the north, he didn't want his people going down to Judah in the south and to Jerusalem to worship any longer. If my people go there, maybe no longer will they be loyal to me, so I'm going to make places of worship here in Israel, in the north. And so he sets up altars with golden calves at Bethel and Dan. And now... In 1 Kings 13, this king, Jeroboam, there is standing at this altar in Bethel making sacrifice to the golden calf. A prophet comes and speaks and says, this is what the Lord says, altar, oh altar, altar. Thus says the Lord, a son shall be born To the house of David, Josiah by name, he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places. These are false priests that are leading in the worship of idols. They make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. God sends this prophet to Israel to warn them. Don't make sacrifice here. Don't worship in this place. This is a false god. This is not true religion. And so there's this promise of the altar's destruction. And then there's this long period of time before Josiah comes and this is fulfilled. That actually takes place in the second book of Kings in chapter 23. You can turn there if you'd like. 2 Kings 23, the king sent, and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him, and the king went up to the house of the Lord, and with him all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the prophets, all the people, both small and great, and he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. They rediscover God's word and Josiah has it read out loud to everybody. All the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. Verse 3, And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book and all the people joined in the covenant. This is glorious. This is great. This is a commitment. God, we've reclaimed your word. We found it again. It was lost for so long. And now we have it and we're reading it. And Lord God, we are committed to it and we want to follow it. We realize these are the words of life. And Josiah begins making these reforms to worship God truly as His word spells out that he is to be worshipped. And he begins tearing down all of these false altars and places of worship, those which Solomon had even established in his time. And then verse 15 of 2 Kings 23, moreover the altar at Bethel. Huh? Now this brings us to Amos 9. This is 
I believe the altar at Bethel, the altar at Bethel, the high place erected by Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that was back in 1 Kings 13, who made Israel to sin, that altar with the high place, he pulled down and burned, reducing it to dust. He also burned the Asherah, so those are idols, those are false gods, and as Josiah turned, he saw the tombs there on the mount, and he sent and took the bones out of the tomb and burned them on the altar and defiled it according to the word of the Lord that the man of God proclaimed who had predicted these things. 1 Kings 13 is accomplished in 2 Kings 23. And Amos puts us in the middle of those two events. God made a promise that this is what I am going to do. Don't worship here. It's a false temple. Don't sacrifice here. It's the wrong altar. And this is what I am going to do. And a long time went by before that was fully accomplished, finally accomplished. And Israel continued to worship at this place. And so the Lord gives this vision to Amos. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar. And I'm convinced that this is the altar, not in Jerusalem, but the altar in Bethel, the false place of worship and the temple that went along with it. Because read with me here, strike the capitals. This is what God is speaking Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake. So the pillars that were holding up the roof of this temple structure and the capitals, the tops of those columns, strike until the thresholds shake, even the foundations shake, and shatter them on the heads of all the peoples as this roof comes crashing down, crashing down on the heads of the people that were there worshiping false gods. And those who are left of them, I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. This is God executing his judgment on those who are worshiping false gods without exception. Not one of them would flee away. Not one of them would escape. They think that they can run They think they can get away? They think they can hide? No. And we see this even explained more fully in verses 2 and 3. If they dig into Sheol, they start digging down into the graves, into the tombs, down, down into Sheol. From there, God says, my hand shall take them. Can't go low enough into the earth. If they climb up to heaven as high as you can go from there, I will bring them down. This isn't hard for God. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, you don't play hide and seek with God. You won't win. On the top of Carmel, like that's out of the reach or the sight or the grasp of God. No, he says from there, I will search them out and take them. And if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea... There I will command the serpent, and it shall bite them. And maybe if they go into captivity before their enemies. No, even there, God says, I will command the sword, and it shall kill them. And I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. God has been so patient with his people. And I want you to understand that, church, as we come to Amos chapter 9, that God gave them warning for what they were to do. God has laid out in his word so clearly how he is to be worshipped, and they ignored that, and they went on worshipping as they wanted to worship. God had given them opportunity to turn, 
to repent, but they did not, and they would not. Peter writes in his second epistle that maybe this long period of time that we think God has grown forgetful, not understanding that it was really God's patience so that none would perish, but rather would come to repentance. That's God's desire. Repentance. To hear God's word, to receive it, and to respond to it, and to say, yeah, I've been going the wrong direction. I've been worshiping at the wrong altar. I need to turn I need to do what's right once again. I need to go to the right altar. I need to go to the right place of worship, which is the cross, the place of Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, where he offered his life as a sacrifice for sins once for all. Not like the animals that were sacrificed in the Old Testament, one after another, after another, continually, repeatedly, day after day, year after year, because they were insufficient. No, Hebrews tells us that Christ came and he offered himself once as a sacrifice for all. Once, because his sacrifice was sufficient. And that is where we are to bow. That is where we are to humble ourselves. That is where we are to go to draw near to God. Is the cross and the sacrifice of Christ. His account from First Kings and Second Kings, and the destruction of the altar, this picture that we see in Amos chapter 9, church, it presses upon us to take sin seriously. To take sin seriously. To hear what God says about it and to respond. And if we give it a day or two and we don't respond and nothing happens to not be like the people of Israel and say, so it must not matter. No, rather to think, boy, I'm I'm in overtime. I need to respond now. Now is the time for decisive action. This is the day of salvation. This is the time for repentance to take sin seriously and not keep pressing and trying to stretch and how long can I get away with this? Jesus talks in Matthew chapter five about the person with the offending hand and what are they to do? To cut it off. Or the person with the offending eye and what are they to do? Tear it out. Sin is to be taken seriously. This is a a very clear point. False altars. Amos chapter 9. False places of worship. False gods that we're devoted to. Church, we need to take this seriously. We need to give this some, some serious thought. Are there false altars in your life? Are there places where you have gone to, to worship? Maybe not even physically, but, but in your mind, with your money, where you're offering sacrifices displeasing to the Lord, where you're putting your time and your energy Paul tells the Romans, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That is how our worship is to be oriented, as living sacrifices to God. And we never stop worshiping. 
It's just a matter of what are we worshiping? Are there false altars in your life? Are there false gods that have been stood up in your life? What sacrifices maybe have you made recently where you think, boy, I really made a a sacrifice of what? We could sacrifice time. I've given so much time to this cause or this endeavor. And those could be great things. And God could be calling us to those. But they could also be good things that have grown out of proportion now. And they're becoming like gods to us, even good things that no longer are in their right place, but are usurping the place of God in our lives. Have you sacrificed things for selfish pursuits just for yourself? Prayer time for a little more sloth? What is it that if it were to be taken away from you today, you'd say, oh, it would be the ruin of me. What is it that when you have idle time in your mind that you go to, that you daydream about, that you think about? Those kinds of questions will will help us to be able to diagnose if there are false gods, idols, false altars in our life. Something taken away that would absolutely destroy you. The thing that your mind is always going toward and and thinking about. We need to keep those things in their right place. Again, those could be good things, and those could be things that God is calling us to, but we need to be careful that they don't take the place of God. And if those things have started to take the place of God in your life, Amos chapter 9 urges us to come to the Lord in repentance rather than waiting and being visited by the Lord coming in judgment. There's no place where God's presence can be avoided. Even if you think, I could flee away, I could do this, I could do that. No, I can figure a way out of this. And that's, that's the way we're wired. And, and that's the American way, right? And even us here in the wild, wild west, we think, We can make things happen. We can figure things out. We can do it on our own. And that's what the the people of Israel, I'll just dig down as far as I can go and I'll get away from God. Uh Uh-uh. Up as high as you can go? Uh Uh-uh. Hiding on a mountaintop or in the caves of a mountain? No, you cannot escape God, even if you go down to the bottom of the sea, God has sea serpents down there that he controls. He's a God of all creation. There is no getting away from him. And these words at the end of verse 4, I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. A terrifying presence for the people of Israel. God was a terrifying presence. Now, when I was younger, middle school, early high school, the the pastor, Jason will know this story. Karen probably knows this story as well. Uh, My pastor would, would often tell the story about the thief that broke into a home at night. And there he is rummaging through things, filling his bag with loot, and he's got his flashlight, and there's a bird in the corner of the room squawking at him. Karen's laughing because she knows it. And it's saying, Jesus is watching you. He's like, whatever, bird. Keeps filling his bag. This bird keeps talking to him. 
Jesus is watching you. And then he hears this snarling and growling in the corner. And he takes his flashlight and he fixes it on a massive Rottweiler. They're glaring at him, teeth bared, collar on its neck with its name proudly displayed, Jesus. (laughs) Jesus is watching you. A terrifying presence. Maybe you've, you've heard the story of the young boy who came home from Sunday school and frightened, told his mother that Sunday school teacher, when he was misbehaving, told him, little Johnny, you know that God sees everything that you do. God is always watching you. And the mom, in her kindness, she responds in this tenderness, well, yes, little Johnny, but that's because he loves you so much, he just can't take his eyes off of you. That could very well be true. But for Israel, God's eyes were fixed upon them. And it was not because he loved them so much that he just couldn't take his eyes off of them. No, he did love them with a very tangible love. He had, he had formed this nation out of nothing. He had a plan for this nation that through this nation, all the families of the earth would be blessed. But the bulk of this nation at this time was walking in disobedience, in rebellion, in unrepentance. And so God's eyes upon them was terrifying, fixed upon them for evil, to bring about disaster, even as we've talked about in Amos, a severe kindness to break them down that they might come to repentance. And maybe as as we've looked over some of these verses, there's another passage of Scripture that you say, this this seems similar, but, but so very different. It seems similar. Doesn't this have something in common with, with a psalm, maybe? And you'd be right. Psalm 139. Psalm 139 talks about the presence of God and the eyes of the Lord being upon his people. It begins, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. There's no getting away from you, Lord. You see everything. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in, behind, and before, and lay your hand upon me. Now, is this a terrifying presence for the psalmist? For David? No, he says in verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? To heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Verse 17, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. That's David, knowing God's presence and saying, your thoughts toward me are precious. This knowledge of you is wonderful. It's high. I cannot even attain it. 
These are similar in that God is omniscient and God is omnipresent. There is no escaping his sight. There is no getting outside of where he abides, where he is present. But how do we understand that? And I'd say, not even we corporately, but how do we individually understand that? Do you think of the presence of God and think precious? Oh, I love it. The Lord is near to me. What a a blessing that is. Or do you think, terrifying. The Lord sees everything that I do. The Lord knows my thoughts tremble. Surely disaster will come upon me if these things are known. Psalm 139 shows a man at peace with God and enjoying the presence of God. But here, God's presence is terrifying. And I'd ask you to consider today, what is your response to that knowledge that God is at all places, that God knows all things, that God is intimately familiar with you, what you do, what you say, what you think. And does that bring you comfort and peace? Like David in Psalm 139? Or does that terrify you? Amos then fills out this picture of God even more fully in verses 5 and 6, that he is awesome in power. This hymn, the Lord God of hosts, he who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell in it mourn, and all of it rises like the Nile and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt, who builds his upper chambers in the heavens, founds his vault upon the earth, calls for the waters of the sea, pours them out upon the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. This is a break from from the Lord speaking in those first four verses, and now this is Amos inserting this hymn, praising God's awesome power. He is the God who commands a heavenly army, the Lord God of hosts a heavenly host, a heavenly army. Just a a touch of his, Amos says, causes the earth to melt and all the people on the earth to mourn. Maybe we've even had a sense of this here in recent weeks with fires going on. And Even us who maybe here, our homes haven't been threatened or endangered, but we've just been socked in with smoke. And I see it in people's faces. And and as I talk to them, there's this mourning of, oh, this year, all of these things that are are taking place. And there's there's a mourning, we could say. Amos compares the heaving of the earth that God's touched to the swelling and then the sinking of the Nile River. And this is the power of the Lord's touch that he just touches it and he causes the earth to move in this way. He is Lord over all creation. Even as Amos calls out at the end of verse 6, he calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out upon the surface of the earth. The water cycle and all of creation is under his power. Referring again back to Isaiah 6 and Psalm 139, a God who is awesome in power. And we get to serve this God, a God who is awesome in power, and this should humble us. This should make us feel appropriately small. This is what Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, in realizing whose presence he was in, 
The foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah, in realizing whose presence he was in, he's humbled, he's brought low. Woe is me. I'm lost. I'm I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm sinful through and through. God is holy, holy, holy. This picture of God should bring us down. It should humble us. It should make us feel appropriately small because we are but Israel, however, no, they were, they were puffed with pride. They continued on in this disastrous pride that we see in verses 7 through 10. Are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt, the Philistines from Kaftor, and the Syrians from Kir? The Israelites mistakenly believed that they somehow existed in a place of God's favor regardless of what they did. We're God's favorite. And it doesn't matter what we do, what we say, where we go, how we worship. God is just going to love us because we're Israel. This is a reality check for them. God says, I brought you up from the land of Egypt. Did you know I also brought up the Philistines? Did you know I also brought up the Syrians? These other nations that Israel abhorred, the Philistines, their arch enemies, they hated them. God says, I I brought them from Kaftor. The Syrians? who you're in constant battle against, I brought them up from Kir. Israel is not all that different than the Egyptians, the Philistines, the Syrians. But look at what they say in verse 10. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who say disaster shall not overtake or meet us. Somehow they had this idea that We're immune to all of this. No disaster is going to overtake us. We're Israel. No disaster is going to meet us. We're Israel. But this is pride. They refused to acknowledge their need for God's mercy and grace. Instead of being brought to a place of repentance, they're obstinate, they're stubborn, they're proud. Disaster shall not overtake us. Disaster shall not meet us. This is like the church in Laodicea. They, in their pride, say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Jesus says, not realizing, you are wretched, you are poor, you are pitiable, you are blind, and you are naked. And I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, hear this, it's those whom I love, I reprove and discipline So be zealous and repent. That's what was lacking for Israel. There was no repentance. There was no responding to God's word. There was no turning away from sin. There was no conforming to God's word. There was this continuing on the same path that they had always walked, getting further and further away from the Lord. 
And so God's eyes were set upon them. Verse 8, the sinful kingdom. And how sad that he refers to them as the sinful kingdom. And I will destroy it from the surface of the ground. As we saw in the first four verses, there seems to be no exception. Those that were there at the altar and at this false temple to worship, this golden calf set up at Bethel for worship, God says, I'm going to strike the capitals, bring the roof down, the thresholds are going to shake, and it's going to crush the heads of all that are there. And without exception, no matter where they go, God would reach them for judgment. But at the end of verse 8, we see an exception. I will destroy it, the sinful kingdom, from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob. Except that I will not utterly destroy. We're going to focus on this in even greater detail next week. But church, I want you to see that God had a remnant among the nation of Israel. God had those that he was saving. God had those that he would continue his work through and accomplish the story of salvation and redemption. God wouldn't deal with all of them in exactly the same way. And that's what we see in verse 9. There was going to be this separation. I will shake the house of Israel among all the nations as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the ground. There would be a distinction. There would be a separating out wheat from chaff and weeds, good soil from rocky soil. That's what this is. The separating out. For most of the nation of Israel, there was no acknowledgement that they deserved punishment. There was no broken and contrite heart calling to God for mercy. No, that wasn't present. And God had been so patient in bringing judgment, but God would not put it off forever. The day will come, and at that time, eternities will be sealed. And this morning, in closing, as we consider Acts or Amos chapter 9, I would ask you to consider any sin that you think that's too small. I don't need to bring that to the Lord. Or if you think yourself immune to God's correction, do not continue in sin. Sins which seem so small have a way of growing and of multiplying. Have you been offering sacrifices on wrong altars? And if so, don't ignore it. But the Lord welcomes us to come back in repentance. Don't just resolve to try harder, to do better. I can fix this on my own. I know I can. I will never do that again. I promise. And I'm going to do better next time. No, that's not what the Lord wants of us. He wants humility. He wants brokenness before him. He wants repentance to come to him, our holy, our just, and our mighty God. And he will respond in mercy. I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob. Do you know why that is? Because God had given promises about what he would do. Even to Abraham, through you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Do you know how he would accomplish that? Because Jesus came from the line of Abraham. 
Because Jesus came so that all the families of the earth could be blessed in Jesus. This is gospel that is here in Amos. God says, I'm not casting off my plan. I'm still carrying out this plan of redemption. And it will be accomplished in Jesus. We get to look back to the cross. For Israel and the audience that Amos was speaking to, they would have to look forward to what God was doing. But we get to look back and we get to have more clarity, more understanding of God's mercy upon us in Jesus. And so we can come boldly to the throne of grace. We can find grace and help in our time of need because of what Jesus has accomplished for us. And so as the music team comes back up this morning, they lead us in a few songs. We have opportunity to partake of the Lord's Supper I want you to respond. I want you to think and consider. Are there other altars? Are there false sacrifices? Are there idols in my life? Are there sins which I think are small and maybe I don't need to deal with? And to bring those to the Lord. To come before our maker in the name of Jesus Christ and recognize that there is forgiveness for those. And that God will welcome us, and that God will strengthen us, and that God will direct us that we might walk in his ways and experience fullness of life and life that brings glory to his name. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the words of Amos that you gave him to speak to the people of Israel. And I think that those words to Israel are so applicable to us today. Take your word. Impress it upon our hearts. Mold and shape and change us. I pray that all of us gathered here today would know you as a God of mercy. You are also a God of judgment, and we are grateful for that. But Lord, may we understand your mercy in the face of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Pillar Bible Fellowship. Please email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org.